values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. You heard in the newscast, uh, the national part of the newscast, especially the, uh, the, the big news from Microsoft, 10,000 layoffs over the next year. Um, so that's about 10% of their workforce saying that things are changing. Are we beginning to see that dramatic slowdown? We'll find out. But here's an interesting story. Um, this is from the Wall Street Journal. U.S. retail sales fell by 1.1% in December. Now, normally, that wouldn't be as big of a deal, except this was at the height of the shopping season for the holidays. Uh, U.S. consumers cut back on retail spending at the height of the holiday season as consumers spent less on vehicles in popular gift categories and furniture. Retail sales, a measure of purchases at stores, restaurants, and online, declined a seasonally adjusted 1.1% in, de- in December from the prior month that was the biggest monthly decline of that was the biggest monthly decline of 2022 um, and marked the second consecutive month of decline so the concern obviously is um, are we are we moving toward recession uh, and I want to talk about the things that influence the economy and some of the I guess the basic principles that I think um, make sense to me and 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 I like the conversation with people because I certainly am not the sharpest knife in the drawer um, I've always lived by what I believe to be a common sense look at things um, but that doesn't mean I'm right all the time and there are sometimes is more depth to a conversation than I have information on but here's a headline I want you to hear Billionaires in blue states face coordinated wealth tax bills. Um, so it, it starts off. Uh, it says the point here is to make sure we do at, we do at the state level what is not being done at the federal level. This is a New York state senator. Some of the state's bills resemble a wealth tax. Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts pitched the idea during her 2020 presidential candidacy. So I want to start there for a moment. Um, Nobody feels bad for a billionaire, you know, but the principle of we are going to take from those that have more than they need and you get to define need when you take it um, in order to give to those that don't puts the government in a very powerful position. And I would say that it's it's not beneficial that the government should be smaller, that the government shouldn't have as much power. I think that's a principle a lot of people believe in, not because I think government is evil, but because it's inefficient, because I want to mirror. I want to not a mirror, but I want to lay side by side these two headlines. Um, The billionaire blue states face this wealth tax. I have been talking about government waste and inefficiency for for over a decade. Um, Here's the headline, the Pentagon. Now, you're not going to find anybody that is more supportive of the military than I am. I think a strong national defense is the cornerstone of the federal government's responsibility. Protect the borders, strong national defense, infrastructure. Those are the basic things that they're responsible for. So this is not – I'm pointing out here, here is a government agency that I believe needs to be fully funded, needs to be strong. We need to have peace through strength, as Reagan said. But this headline, the Pentagon still cannot account for roughly – $220 $220 billion in equipment. I want you to think about that number. They cannot account for roughly $220 billion with a B dollars in equipment. So I'm going to read just the first paragraph. The Department of Defense has neglected to address its inability to keep track of at least $220 billion in equipment provided to the government contractors, according to a report by the Government Accountability Office, or the GAO. 
Auditors first reported the Pentagon's failure to account for government-owned equipment or material offered up for the use of uh, to contracting agencies, also called government-furnished property, in 2001. So it talks about this longstanding issue affects the accounting and reporting and is one of the reasons the DOD is unable to produce uh, auditable financial statements. So here we have, uh, in my estimation, a quandary. Um, The president brags about reducing the deficit. Well, uh, spending on COVID-19 relief has gone down dramatically, and I'm not here to insult the president. If if he's driving down the deficit, we're still running at a deficit. We have record uh, revenue into the United States Treasury. We still run at a deficit in this country, which I think is tragic. But on top of that, we've never addressed the inefficiency. Government waste, government redundancy, and in this case, $220 billion with a B in equipment. I want every one of you to think, and many of you are either on your way to work or sitting at work right now, and some of you are in charge of at least part of the financial aspect of a company, whether you own it or it's your job to do payroll or or, or accounts payable or receivable, whatever. If you were that inefficient in your job for one year, would you keep your job? If Take some zeros off that $220 billion. If the company you work for, you couldn't account for $220,000 or $22,000 at the end of the year in equipment. You tell me, I, you know, I've worked for very small companies. I've worked for big companies. I've worked for companies where there are, you know, were over 100 electricians that worked for them. I was in a, what's called a service truck. I was out driving and running. There are some people, they call them gang box jobs that show up on a job site. Material gets delivered to the job site. Um, they keep the tools on the job site, the ladders and everything else, and they're rolled out every day. But at the end of the job, there's an accountability for how much material you ordered to perform that job based on what was bid in the job. But for me, driving around in a service truck, my bosses kept track of what I was purchasing because there's nothing worse than buying a bunch of equipment that sits in a truck that never gets used. But on top of that, you're issued, and and again, you're talking about a total of of a truck that's probably in really good working order, costing less than $100,000 to run for a year. In other words, to fully stock it, to buy the work truck, to put the ladders and the tools and the material in it. It's about $100,000 grand for a, for a vehicle. Imagine if at the end of the year, I couldn't account for the power tools that my boss put on that truck. And we're talking about tools that cost a couple of hundred bucks a piece most of the time to replace. If I was constantly breaking tools or losing them, I couldn't account for where they were. How long would I stay employed? So we have this ongoing argument in this country where we have a very powerful voice or very powerful voices in our government that continue to say that the wealthy in this country need to pay more, that they need to pay their fair share. Now, and and let's be honest, we know that there are some billionaires out there that agree. And I think that if they want to volunteer to write a check to the federal government to help their country, I think that's admirable. But the government taking it from you, but then the inefficiency in our government is something none of us should tolerate. How is that a partisan issue? How is it a partisan issue, left or right or center, independent, whatever? How is it a partisan issue to say you can't find $220 billion worth of equipment? People need to lose their jobs. And we don't. 
We have so many zeros in the trillions of dollars in debt we are, the trillions of dollars in our budgets that we have, a couple of million here, a billion there, and it seems to be almost as if it's not that big of a deal. These are the principles that I think are common sense. It shouldn't have to be right versus left all the time. $220 billion in just one federal agency, they can't account for equipment. And it's something we all should wake up to. We all should wake up to this. Coming up in a moment, uh, crime rates in major cities have increased as the defund the police movement went on. We're going to talk about some examples, and we're going to talk about local as well. All that's coming up here in just a moment. And strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. A quick reminder, if you believe you have the oldest AC here in the Valley, you could win a brand new high efficiency AC with an air purifier, courtesy of day and night air conditioning. Just text the word day to 411-923 to enter right now. Great contest. Um, so the defund the police movement, I talk about cause and effect. I, again, my principles, common sense. Um, I don't believe, I would say to you that I think all of us have the same goals. Uh, we want an efficient police department that is well-staffed, well-funded, does an excellent job of protecting innocent people. They treat people with respect. They're treated with respect in a society where we have decided we are going to be law and order, where we are not the Wild West. We are not hanging horse thieves. Uh, from the highest tree we can find. We have a system of justice where we call the authorities. They make arrests. We have a justice system of trials. And so we trust in that system. When it breaks down at any level, it's a nightmare for the innocent people that feel as if they're not getting the justice they deserve. So I would say that I would agree in the end goal for what people say in the defund the police movement or the police, let's say at least the police reform movement, in that we want a better trained uh, police force every chance we can get one. We want a good relationship between all of the community and the police, a trusting relationship. I would say defunding the police goes in the opposite direction of that, and I can use Phoenix as a perfect example, but I could use any Valley City as an example. The example I would say in the city of Phoenix is if you don't have enough officers, how do you train them? Ideally speaking, when you look at a precinct, and our, our city is broken up into precincts, police officers work in squads. And you cover a precinct and sometimes you have a beat that you cover and other times you guys kind of cover each other. But you work as a team, as a squad in the military, you work as a squad or a platoon or a company. And so the ideal, the ideal situation is that you work together, you train together, you trust each other, you know each other. So ideally, wouldn't it be great if we had enough police officers in Phoenix where you could pull a squad out of service? For two, three days, a week, whatever it is, and allow them to work and train together to be better on the street to face situations in real life. Having a squad of officers that can fill in for that week or those days while the officers are away at training as a group. As a unit, so they train together. I mean, to me, that sounds like an ideal situation. You cannot have that when you are so dramatically understaffed as the Phoenix Police Department is. Can't. 
They're doing training when they can, as often as they can, and they are still maintaining a high level of discipline. It's not as if it's a, it's a shoddy agency. They are a well-respected agency across the country. But are they – is it being run ideally? And I would say it's more officers, not less, that make that happen. The defund the police movement here in Seattle – After Seattle defunded the police, local business owners say crime is worse than ever. It is. This is the part that bothers me with the relationship between civilians or citizens and the police. They're not dealing with people like you and I all the time. Most of the time when police officers are dealing with the public in crime situations, they're dealing with the same 5 to 10% of society over and over again. You look at the criminal records of people, generally speaking, they have a long criminal history. They are somebody, if they're a thief, if they're a shoplifter, they've been arrested multiple times for shoplifting or multiple times for drug offenses or multiple times for prostitution, multiple times for robbery. Because they are career criminals. It's not dealing with people like you and I. And so when people have that predatory mindset that they're looking for an opportunity to get over on someone, unless you have enough fully staffed police department, they start to get the upper hand. It, 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 is, it makes perfect sense. So in D.C., in Washington, D.C., the mayor overrode a crime reform bill. Because it was going to lessen the severity of punishments for certain crimes. The city council had enough votes to override the veto. The bill softens penalties for several offenses, including violent crimes involving a gun. <laughs> it passed in the D.C. Council 12 to, 12 to 1, reversing the January 4th decision by the mayor to, re, to veto the reform. The council had previously voted to pass the bill unanimously. Uh, Critics are concerned about the impact of the bill's reduction of maximum sentences, elimination of nearly all mandatory minimum sentences, and expansion of the right to a jury trial for those accused of misdemeanors. The bill also softens penalties for carjackings and burglaries. You're talking about a city that has some of the most uh, most strict, I should say strict, not lenient, most strict gun laws in in the country. So innocent people have a very difficult time protecting themselves, and you've just loosened the punishments on the criminal element. Again, adding to the risk reward in which they say, why wouldn't we try it? It is not the way to run a city. It is not the way to run a country. That doesn't mean people aren't redeemable. That doesn't mean that someone that even has a history of criminal behavior can't turn their lives around. But it also doesn't mean that people should be sitting ducks until they decide to do it. We have got to give police officers the tools they need to do their jobs. We have to partner them up with prosecutors that are going to vigorously prosecute those cases, and we have to have judges that are going to sentence them. But in this case with D.C., you have to have a city council that says we're going to put teeth in our laws to protect innocent people from bad people. You know that when you come to our city, if you break the law, you're going to pay a price. If you want a leniency, go to someone else's city. It's not going to happen here. It seems common sense to me. We're talking about things that I think are absolutely common sense. But it doesn't seem to be so common, does it? Uh, Senator Cinema discusses the border at the World Economic Forum. We're going to talk border issues. And one major city's mayor says we don't have any more room for migrants. We'll talk about it all next.
strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, Going to talk about the border. It's an ongoing conversation. Senator Kirsten Sinema um, was at the World Economic Forum and addressing the issue of immigration. And I want you to hear what the senator said, which I think is absolutely on point as she's talking about uh, about this. Um, she was talking about how uh, the, we don't we don't control our borders and we're not choosing who comes to this country. Um I want to read the exact quote from this story. The key is to create a system where we get to choose as a nation who we will invite into the country and who we will not. Right now, because of our immigration security system is completely broken, we are not choosing who gets to come and who doesn't. The cartels are choosing, and that is not sustainable for our country. Hard to argue that point. Now I want you to hear something that I find ironic. Uh, in his own way, he's saying this, which obviously I don't agree with 100%, but the admission from Mayor Adams from the city of New York and talking about there's not enough room in the city. Our cities are being undermined, and we don't deserve this. Migrants don't deserve this, and the people who live in the cities don't deserve this. We expect more from our national Now, argue if you want, and I understand the argument about busing migrants across the country, but it has opened the eyes of mayors like Mayor Adams in New York. They get a small taste of what's happening across the southern border of the United States, and he is admitting and saying there is no room in New York City. He has asked the governor of New York to transport migrants from New York City to upstate New York. I will tell you there is – the way Senator Cinema put it is – Exactly right. This isn't about not being benevolent. This isn't about not being aware. This isn't about not being kind. We, if you have a sovereign nation, if you have a nation of laws, if you have a nation with borders and you can't have a country without borders, and we have to be able to dictate who we invite into this country and who we do not. It is not mean-spirited. It is not callous. It is not any of those things. The system we have in place right now is a national security risk on many levels. We've talked about the terror watch list. Yesterday I brought up a story where the farmers in Yuma, where 90% of the leafy vegetables that are eaten in these months of the year across the nation are grown and harvested in Yuma, are saying – we have a food security issue because migrants are crossing at such rates that they are contaminating crops and it is going to be an issue to feed this nation. They called it one of the biggest uh, biggest disasters, natural disasters we've had. So the, 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 the raw meat of these conversations about people that are mean-spirited, and it, it just isn't that way. That what we must do is have a system where we are – and I would say to you that I am probably a lot more likely than most people to invite more and more people into this country the right way. I think immigration and the stories of immigrants to this country are amazing. I, I know this is such a silly analogy or a silly example, but I love to watch the Gordon Ramsay shows. 
And I was watching a show yesterday uh, that they have called Master Chef, and it's one of the old ones, a rerun. But I watched the series because I like them. I just think it's fun to watch them. Um, and there were two cooks that were on this show in this 15 total. One got to go on to the next round, but two of them in particular. One was a Cuban immigrant, and he told the story of coming here. Um, he was born in 1980, and I think they came here when he was a little boy in the 90s. And he said that the first time he ever tried an apple was when he came to the U.S., now, here's a young man that's on one of the premier cooking shows. And, you know, whatever you want to think of the reality shows, it was kind of cool to hear his story of what food meant to him because of how little he had where he came from. There is another chef or a cook, home cook, um, and she is from Burma. And same thing. People in my country are thankful to have a bowl of rice. And for me to have such ingredients to choose from and her love for food because of how little she had where she came from, to see those two talk about the American dream is here I have come from a place with so little food and here I am cooking on a show where I have more ingredients than I'll ever know what to do with. That is, I think, a great analogy for the American dream. And we got to foster those stories, but you can't foster those stories with what's happening now. When you have the mayor of New York City calling out the federal government and saying this is unsustainable for us, when you have Senator Sinema, who knows better than just about anyone, as she's talked about it for years, she was raised in southern Arizona. This is a problem she grew up around, but speaking her mind and going to the World Economic Forum and saying very eloquently, we as a nation have to be able to control who we invite into our nation and who we don't. And she's 100% right. It takes all of the politics out of the issue. It is a practical, common sense. I think today's theme on the show is just common sense. It is a common sense approach. There is nothing mean-spirited. Mean spirited. There is nothing neglectful. There is nothing tyrannical about saying we have the right to choose who we invite into this country. And then we argue about how many people we invite. And I would say to you, some of you may disagree with me because I would want to invite in a lot more people than many do because I think immigrants into this country are the lifeblood. The people I know that are immigrants that have told me their stories that will make you cry patriotic tears because of what a great stories they have about the opportunity that America affords that they could never get anywhere else. The free speech idea. My friends from Cuba that talk about the brown shirts, that talk about any time you speak up against the government in Cuba, how you are taken away and re-educated. You're afraid to speak your mind behind closed doors with your own family because you never know who it is that's going to turn you in. Just story after story like that, and we think, wow, that island is 90 miles from Key West and worlds apart in culture. And here we are arguing the way we are. I just think we are doing a disservice all the way around to everyone involved in this. And I really, I truly, genuinely hope it changes. And I hope it changes quickly. In a moment, uh, we're going to get an update. The classified document scandal with the president and how it's evolving. Is this going away anytime soon or is this just the beginning? We'll talk about it a little bit more coming up in a few moments.
strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Happy Wednesday. Um, just a quick headline. Biden classified doc scandal dredges up something that makes him look more hypocritical. Uh, it's interesting um, because when it rains, it pours. We understand how it works. That w- w- It's almost like that piling on effect. Uh, I mentioned this yesterday. I have enough policy disagreements with the Biden administration that I don't need to do gotcha politics in order to point out what I think are inept uh, decisions made by this administration. But what this shows is a level of hypocrisy at, at a lot of levels because none of us should be or I should say all of us should be concerned if classified documents are being misused or mishandled um, go back to the Hillary Clinton emails I thought that was a horrible thing and the reason why I look at this differently is because I have friends that are worked at the highest level of the um, intelligence gathering world um, my my friend uh, Steve and his wife Alinda both of them spent over 50 years between them with the FBI had been a part of FISA warrants and all kinds of other things so I've been given some insight into the mindset and into the practices of intelligence and and classified material and it is taken very seriously by the people getting a security clearance is not easy to do um, and it's very interesting because when you leave an agency Agency and you give up your clearance, it is in a moment that your right to see things, you're the same person you were. You've got the same relationships in a building you had with people. But the minute you no longer have the clearance, you no longer have access. It is taken that seriously. When the president of the United States has boxes of documents in his garage and then he says to the world, hey, my garage was locked, the American public ought to be concerned. That's all. It doesn't make him evil, but we ought to be very concerned about this. Um, so more files have been found. Um, so the question about this, uh, it, it says, so as if the hypocrisy with the circus wasn't bad enough, let's rehash then Senator Biden torpedoed the CIA nomination of former Kennedy speechwriter Ted Sorensen under Jimmy Carter. Heavily opposed by the intelligence community, Sorensen had no foreign policy experience. The Intercept thought it was worth mentioning, and a broken clock is right twice a day. Biden gave the aura of supporting the nomination before delivering a haymaker to the nominee about his improper acquisition of classified materials. Biden sided with Senate Republicans to kill the nomination when Sorensen, who passed away in 2010, said he was uh, said was an event that should have awarded Biden a prize for political hypocrisy in a town for of, of political hypocrisy. Um, this is what people get upset about. You have the FBI raiding the home of a former president. And I understand that it's not apples to apples 100 percent, but you also have to understand the other side of the argument. You have a former president of the United States who had his house raided by the FBI in full tactical gear, storming the gates and going in and taking documents as if it was a huge national security risk in that moment. And now you've got the Department of Justice is not even monitoring the Biden attorneys as they look for more documents. There is reason for the American public to say that is not good enough. That's all. Uh, It is 
there's plenty for me over the next couple of years to point out that I think we're going in the wrong direction, that I think that there are mistakes being made, that they believe they're well-intentioned, they believe they're doing the right thing, and I think they're doing exactly the wrong thing. That's just my political leanings being different than this administration. But when it comes to the behavior and the accountability and the standards that are set, isn't it supposed to be equal for everyone? You know, if it was necessary, and I again, I don't know the answer to this question. Was it necessary for the FBI to do what they did to acquire those documents from the Trump home in Mar-a-Lago? I don't know the answer to that. But if you're going to ask that question and you're going to watch what happened, at least visually to the naked eye, what was going on, the former president of the United States was not cooperative. And so they went and got the documents. Right now, we're finding out at multiple locations at the home of the former vice president, now the president, where there was no visitor's log available to know who had access to the documents in a garage next to a Corvette. And it isn't the first set of documents. It's at multiple locations, and they're looking for more. You mean to tell me that there's no visitor's log at that home? They said that it was used. They, they Originally, the administration said that this home was used for official business by the president when he was on vacation or whatever else, that he conducted official business there. Now that there is no visitor's log, they're saying, no, it's a private residence. It's not official business. So they're changing their mind and changing their story multiple times in all of this. So the political activism of people on the right now that smell blood in the water is just the way politics is done, just like with former President Trump. They smell blood in the water on the left with some of these things. But in the end, reasonable people look at this and say, if you came out and said you cannot possibly understand how former President Trump had the documents he did and how irresponsible it was and how does something like that happen? And then when those documents end up in your possession at multiple locations and you say you don't even know what's in there, hmm, there's cause for the American public to be very, very, very concerned. And I believe that they are and they should be. What we're going to do in the 10 o'clock hour is uh, we're going to talk about protests at the state capitol. The governor has come out with what she wants to do with the budget. It is different from what we've seen from the legislature. So there are going to be negotiations on that budget. But one of the big sticking points is her commitment to at least reduce, if not get rid of, the the ESA program, the Empowerment Scholarship Account program that so many parents are saying is doing good things for their children's education. And the legislature passed it. So we're going to discuss in the next hour with a value of that program in the state of education in Arizona. I think it's another valuable conversation. We've had it before and we should continue to have it until things get fixed. Stick around.